Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning, as we continue our consideration of Matthew's Gospel, we come to the very famous uh, section, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we will consider verses 1 through 16 of chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. This is the Word of God. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, His disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its favor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let us pray. Gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would preach this sermon to us anew today by the Spirit. Open up your word and fill our souls, fill our hearts, that we would be to the praise of the glory of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Sermon on the Mount... And the Beatitudes, in particular, are among the best known and the least known of the New Testament scriptures. They are among the best known in the sense that everybody knows about them. I think most unbelievers, atheists even, know about the Sermon on the Mount. They know about the Beatitudes. Uh, Most people think the Beatitudes, in particular, are beautiful. Most people can quote at least something, of uh, the Beatitudes. And in spite uh, all of this uh, belovedness and and well-knownness, yet they are among the least known of the scriptures because they are among the the scriptures which are most taken by everybody and kind of uh, bent this way or that way, infused or filled with our own meaning, so that everybody, it seems, can, to their own satisfaction, say what they mean, and everybody can, to their own satisfaction, in some sense, 
think they are living out the Beatitudes. I think that's even true of many unbelievers. One of the reasons why I think it's least known is because we tend to consider particularly these scriptures and the Beatitudes in the abstract. We, that is, we consider them apart from their context. And particularly that means that we consider them apart from Matthew's running theme throughout his entire gospel that Jesus is true Israel. And thus, in his life and ministry, Jesus is reliving the history of Israel, succeeding everywhere Israel failed. And thus, Jesus is the one who is fulfilling Israel's calling, and he is the one who is entering into her destiny, and therefore bringing salvation to the world. So, as we've already seen, as Israel was called out of Egypt, Jesus was called out of Egypt. As Israel came through a baptism in the Red Sea, so Jesus was baptized. As Israel was tempted in the wilderness, so Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. As Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights without food or water, so Jesus was 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. And now, just as Moses gave the law to Israel at Mount Sinai, so Jesus will give the law to his disciples at a mountain. And hence, this is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in the sermon, and we have to remember, chapters 5 through 7 is one sermon. It's all to be considered together. We can't take one little part off from the rest of it. We need to understand it as a whole. In this sermon, Jesus combines elements of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and of Deuteronomy, which was Moses' preaching of the law. Deuteronomy means second law. And it doesn't mean that Moses is now giving a different law, a new law. What it means is now he is preaching or explaining the law. Deuteronomy is where Moses taught the law to Israel in a series of sermons explaining exactly what the law meant, explaining what is it that God is really after, what is he really looking for, and explaining also the blessings that would come if his people kept the law and the curses that would come if she did not keep the law. And so here Jesus preaches a sermon in which he explains the law. He explains to his disciples what the law is really about, what the law really means, what God is really looking for from people. And he explains the blessings that will attend obedience and the curses that will follow disobedience. So we see from the very beginning, Jesus starts out emphasizing the blessings of obedience. That's what we have in the Beatitudes. It keeps saying blessed and blessed and blessed. It emphasizes the blessedness of obedience, but it also has a reminder of the curses for disobedience. You can see in verse 13, he says, If salt loses its uh, flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by uh, men. And when we get to the end of the sermon in chapter 7, we're going to see that Jesus again will start talking about blesses and cursing. He will remind the people of the blessings of the Lord. He will say that everyone who hears his word and does his word 
is like a person who builds a house on a rock. And when the flood comes and rages against that house, that house is going to stand. But at the same time, he is going to emphasize the curses that will come from disobedience. He will tell the people, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He will tell them that everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he will tell them that everyone who hears my words but does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds a house on sand. And when the flood comes, that house is going to fall and great will be its fall. Now, in Deuteronomy, what Moses is really doing throughout this, what is one of the longest books in the Bible, is he's holding out before God's people, God's covenant promises to Abraham. He's basically taking those promises that God made to Abraham and he's holding them out, explaining them and holding them out before the people. Now, what did those promises hold forth? Well, in a nutshell, what God promised Abraham was this. God himself with the world thrown in for good measure. That's what the promises are about. God himself with the world thrown in for good measure. The central promise is God saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. And what we see in the Bible is that that says everything. For God to be our God, for us to be our people, really, there's nothing more you can say. Because to have God is to have the good life. And the good life is what everybody is after. In the history of the world, there has not been one single person who has done one single thing, who did not do it, except for the reason that they believed that somehow, some way, sometime, what they were doing was somehow going to connect up with greater happiness for themselves. Okay? Everybody is looking for the good life. And what the Bible tells us, and what is involved in the Abrahamic promise, is having God... And having God means having the good life with every blessing in heaven and on earth, both spiritual and material, both personal and collective. To have God, as Moses tells the people, is to be exalted to ride on the heights of the earth. There are spiritual blessings involved. There is also material blessings involved. He said you will be exalted to ride on the heights of the earth and you will draw all nations to you, and therefore to the Lord. To have God is to inherit the earth. And all of that put together is what it means to have the kingdom of God. What does it mean to inherit the kingdom? What does it mean to possess the kingdom? It means to have God. It means to have the good life. It means to be exalted, to ride on the heights of the earth, to draw all nations. It means to inherit the earth. All of that is what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, particularly in Romans and Galatians, tells us some very important things about God's promises to Abraham. He tells us that those promises are only received in Christ. For Christ is the true seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16. 
to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And God does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. So the promises of Abraham are only received in Christ. Next, Paul tells us that all those who are in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, all of those who are in Christ are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promises. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. The verse before that, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. So the promises are only inherited through Christ. And on the other hand, everyone who is in Christ inherits the promises. And only those who are in Christ inherit the promises. Next, Paul tells us that God's promises for Abraham's seed to inherit the land of Canaan, that was really a promise for Christ to inherit the world. In Romans 4.13, Paul refers to the promise of God to Abraham that he would inherit the land, and Paul describes it as a promise that Abraham's seed, that is Christ, would inherit the world. The promise that Abraham would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So what we see is that the land of Canaan was a picture. It was a picture and it was a training ground. And thus, at the end of the ministry, of his ministry, the resurrected Jesus will give the great commission in which he will claim the whole world and its nations as his own. And he will tell his disciples to make all the nations as they are, disciples of Jesus Christ. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, like Moses, Jesus is holding forth to his disciples all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. He promises God himself. They shall see God and be called sons of God, he says. He holds forth God's personal blessings. They shall obtain mercy and be comforted and be filled. He holds forth the world. They shall inherit the earth, he says. He holds forth the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he says twice, at the beginning and at the end of the Beatitudes, thus indicating that that promise of inheriting the kingdom of heaven sums up every other blessing that he has promised. Well, once you've said that, we have to ask what else could be promised. And the answer is nothing. This subsumes every blessing in the heavenlies, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1. This is everything. There's nothing else. There's, there's nothing else that can be included. This is everything. But the question then relies, arises, how does all of this come to the disciples? Well, he tells them. It comes to them by faithfully living out what God has created them to be. What has he created them to be? He has created them to be a city on a hill, or to use Moses' language, riding on the heights of the earth. God has created them to be the light of the world, drawing all nations. God has created them to be the salt of the earth, that which gives life its delicious 
flavor which God intended. Now, let me say something about salt here. Um, typically, when we hear salt of the earth, we think in terms of preservative. We think in terms of something that just preserves things from going bad. And it is true that in the history of the world uh, that salt has been used as a preservative. But that's not the main way salt is used in the Bible. The main way salt is used in the Bible is as a seasoning for the sacrifices that were offered to God on, in worship under the Old uh, Testament. Every sacrifice had to be seasoned with salt. And the sacrifices under the law are called the food of God. Now remember, we've talked about the ascension offering. It's usually called in the Bible the whole burnt offering. And we get the picture of God's wrath coming down in fire and consuming the animal. We think this is an angry thing. That's not a good translation. The proper translation is not whole burnt offering, but ascension offering. And the picture is the, the animal representing the worshiper being caught up into God's glory cloud and to being lifted up into heaven into God's presence and God's glory. So that's what it's about. And, and the Bible calls that the food of God. Now, the New Testament takes this sacrificial language and talks about our, we offer our sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. And then God, Paul is more explicit in Romans 12. He says we really offer up ourselves to God. So when we come and we offer up our praise and our thanksgiving to God, we are to be offering up ourselves, as Paul says, as living sacrifices, not to be burned up in God's wrath, but to ascend up in His glory cloud into His presence. Us coming, offering ourselves, giving our sincere thanksgiving, that's food to God. That's the way the Bible describes it. And God likes tasty food, and He wants salt on the food. He wants good-tasting, salty food. That's the way, that's the picture we're given. In fact, at one point in the Old Testament, the covenant is actually called the covenant of salt. And he's not saying the, 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 the covenant of preservative. He's saying the covenant of tastiness, the covenant of flavor. And so the main way that salt's used in, in the Bible is that it's, it's the flavor of life. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, he's not saying you're the preservative that nobody likes, but you keep things from being as bad as they could be. What he's saying is, you're the ones who show the flavor of life. You're the ones who show the beauty of life. You're the ones who show life as God meant it to be. That other people can taste it. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? So other people can taste life when they come around the disciples, and then the light goes on. And they go, oh, this, this is life. This is the good life. See, there's where the good life comes in again. They go, this is life as it was meant to be. This is real life. This is tasty life. This is delicious life. This is beautiful life. And they are drawn to God in that way. So the other way that salt is used in the Old Testament is when there would be a military conquest of a town, particularly when God would bring judgment on a city uh, because of wickedness. And very often the way God would do that is that he would raise up some other power, some pagan power, some power that didn't even acknowledge him, 
doesn't believe in God, doesn't acknowledge him. It doesn't matter. God doesn't need us to acknowledge him for him to be sovereign. And God would raise up somebody like Babylon or Egypt or Assyria or Syria and bring them against some uh, wicked city. And they would uh, besiege the city and they would conquer the city and they would trample the city underfoot. They'd tear everything down and then they would salt the ground. Because they were going to sterilize it. They didn't want anything to grow. They wanted that rubble, that heap, to be a living memorial to how powerful this uh, king was and how powerful these people were. And so they didn't want anything growing there. And that's what Jesus is alluding to when he says, when salt has lost its flavor. He's not talking about losing its preservativeness. He's talking about when it loses its flavor, the only thing it's good for is to be thrown out on the ground and to be trampled. So the pictures that uh, these Hebrews are going to be getting from what Jesus is saying is when he says, you're the salt of the earth, you're that which gives the deliciousness of life. That's you. But if God's people lose that purpose and they're not giving the deliciousness of life, they lose their flavor then the only thing it's good for is to be thrown out and to come under judgment, to, be, to come under military conquest, to be trampled underfoot. So those are the two very stark images that Christ is calling up there. So Jesus says, you have to be who God created you to be, and you have to be whom I have saved you to be, and that is a city on a hill. Now, when the Hebrews hear city on a hill, they're immediately going to think of one place, Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was the city on a hill. Right? And when he says, you are created to be the city of the hill, he's saying you were created to be the true Jerusalem. You're created to be the city everybody can see. You're created to be the light that everybody is drawn to. You're created to be that which shows forth the flavor and deliciousness and the beauty of life so that all people are drawn to the people of God and therefore to God himself. And what is the end result of this? He says, this is how you let your light so shine before men so that they see it. And what do people do when they see the light? He says, they glorify your Father which is in heaven. They see your good works. They see your life. They don't just hear a lot of talk about faith. They don't just hear a lot of talk about justification by faith. I mean, that's there. But the main difference is they see your life. They see your good works. Good works. There's that evil word, good works. But it's not an evil word to Jesus. They see your good works and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, what's not to like? What's not to like in this, right? Sign me up. This, sounds, this is glorious and this is triumphant. But there's this element in what Jesus is saying that seems amiss. It doesn't seem to fit with all of this glory and triumphantness. Jesus says that these blessings are going to come to those who are persecuted. Those who are persecuted for his sake. He says these blessings are going to come to those who mourn. He says these blessings are going to come to those who are poor in spirit. So what is going on? How does all this glory fit with all of this suffering that he's talking about? 
Well, again, we have to remember Matthew's theme and the storyline of how Jesus is recapitulating and fulfilling the history of Israel. When Moses gave his sermons in Deuteronomy to the people, the people are about to engage in a great conflict. And a great city is about to fall, the city of Jericho. Likewise, when Jesus is preaching this Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, they are about to enter into a great conflict, and another great city is going to fall, Jerusalem. In barely 40 years, Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot. Not one stone is going to be left on another. Now, you may wonder, how in the world does pagan Jericho serve as a picture of first century Jerusalem, the holy city? But you must remember that Matthew, very early in his gospel, has already identified Jerusalem as Egypt. Remember that? He's already called Jerusalem Egypt. And when we get to the book of Revelation... Jerusalem is going to be called a couple of other uncomplimentary names. Sodom, that's not a nice name to call a city. Sodom, the holy city, Sodom. And Babylon, that's not a nice name to call uh, the holy city either. This language, this is God's picturesque way of saying that by the mid-first century, Jerusalem had become the city of God in name only. Spiritually, Jerusalem was Egypt, she was Jericho, she was Sodom, she was Babylon, and like those cities, she deserved to be trampled underfoot. Now, why is this? Why could this be so? Because Jesus, God, the God who tabernacled among Israel in the Old Testament, who stood before Moses on the rock, who gave the water, who brought the manna, who was with the people, who was in the pillar of fire, who led them through the Red Sea, who led them uh, in battle, who blessed them, who was with them. That one who appeared in a pillar of fire has now come in flesh. He's come. He's Jesus. He's come. He's a man. He's God and he's man. He's not just fulfilling Israel's side of the covenant, which we can see that, and we get that part. He succeeds where Israel failed. The part we so often forget is that he's also fulfilling God's part of the covenant. He's God with us. If he's God with man, as the God-man, he's also man with God. He takes on himself both sides of the covenant and fulfills both of them. So Jesus is there. And Jesus himself says, he says, look, this is going to be the condemnation. The condemnation is not going to be that all these people didn't figure out on their own from the Hebrew Old Testament all of these truths and put it all together themselves and work it all out. He says, no, the condemnation is this, is that God has come to them in the flesh and the people will love darkness rather than light. God is going to send two witnesses, two witnesses, two prophetic witnesses to speak to his people very clearly. He's going to send his own son, God the Son, in the form of the God-man, and then 
when Jesus is resurrected and ascends to God and the Holy Spirit is pointed out, he's going to send the final witness, the Holy Spirit himself. And God's people will be given 40 years, 40 years of preaching and testimony from the disciples toward Jesus. But unfortunately, a lot of them and the power structure in Jerusalem, instead of softening and being drawn to the light, they're going to hate the light, they're going to harden themselves, they're going to persecute the disciples, and ultimately God is going to trample them under foot. Okay. So, what Jesus is alluding to, for example, in verse 13, when he says, Salt that's lost its flavor is good for nothing but to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot by men. Is, he's talking about exactly what is going to happen 40 years later. Jerusalem is going to be besieged and trampled underfoot by the Roman legions. And Jesus will pick up this theme again at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the house that is built on the sand collapsing under a flood. The house of Israel, all of those who refuse to hear and to heed Jesus' word, is going to collapse under the flood of the military siege. And Jesus' entire ministry, as well as the birth and first years of the church, will all take place under the looming shadow of the Jewish-Roman war and the destruction of Jerusalem. The Olivet Discourse which is Jesus' last major sermon or discourse, if you will, recorded in Matthew, which he will give shortly before his death, will be almost entirely taken up with this subject of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He wants his disciples to be prepared. He wants them to get out and to not be caught in that destruction. And so Jesus accordingly warns his disciples of coming conflict with the Jewish establishment. And this conflict, this warfare, if you will, and let me just say that typically the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, are kind of seen as kind of being a peacenik kind of thing. You know, I mean, it talks about peacemakers, doesn't it? It's kind of a peacenik kind of thing. I would submit to you that this is really a council of war. Before this sermon is over with, Jesus is going to talk about pouring coals of burning fire on your enemy. Now, that doesn't sound very peacenik to me. That sounds like warfare. But this warfare, this conflict, is going to seem very one-sided because the disciples are going to be hounded. They're going to be persecuted by the Jewish establishment. And not only that, but they're going to experience the pain of personal betrayal, not only from friends, but from their own family members. They're going to be, he tells them in chapter 10, he says, you're going to be delivered up by family members. Son will turn against father, father against son, mother against daughter. And he says, you're going to be betrayed. You're going to be delivered up to the Jewish councils. You're going to be scourged in the synagogues. You're going to be persecuted from city to city. This is exactly what we see the Apostle Paul doing before he became the Apostle Paul is this kind of persecution. But Jesus assures them that the Jewish power structure, uh, he says, as they treat me, they're going to treat you. And so every one of the things that he says is going to come upon them is going to come upon him first. 
But throughout all this, even though it's going to seem like a very one-sided warfare, Jesus assures his disciples of victory if they endure by faith. For Jesus is building a new house, a house that is built on the rock, the rock of Jesus himself and of his words. And Jesus will conclude the Sermon on the Mount talking about these two houses, one built on the rock and one built on the sand. One house that receives him as Lord and Savior and and is obedient to him, and one that rejects him, one that crucifies him, and further, one that tries to snuff out the testimony of the Holy Spirit, one that's disobedient to him. And both of these houses are going to come under a flood. It is only the flood that reveals the two houses to be what they are. It is only the flood that reveals the good house built on the foundation of the rock to be the good house, and that reveals the house built on sand to be the house built on sand. It is not a different, the difference between the two houses is not flood and no flood. They both get the flood. The difference is one stands and one does not. Because one is built on the rock of Christ and his word, and one is not. So, the disciples of Jesus are going to undergo a flood of persecution from the Jews. And the Jews will undergo a flood of military destruction from the Romans. The difference between Jesus' disciples and the Jewish establishment is not going to be, again, flood or no flood. But standing in the flood as opposed to collapsing. The house that Jesus builds will stand, and thus it will be revealed as the true house of God. They will be the city on a hill. They will be the true Jerusalem, the true city of God, the true light of the world, the true salt of the earth. So the question arises, given this big context, Exactly how are Jesus' disciples to conduct themselves during this time of conflict and persecution? If you're being persecuted, it doesn't really seem like you're fighting. It seems like you're just taking. Well, the thing about this whole Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is teaching his disciples how to fight. And it may seem like a non-fight, but what Jesus is really saying to them is, Look, there's such a thing as a legitimate conventional warfare. There is in the Bible. But Jesus is saying the problem with conventional weapons, swords and spears and bombs and bullets, is they're just not powerful enough. Because they can't change anybody. They can't change anybody's heart. They can't make them new. They can't transform them. And that's what's necessary for the kingdom of heaven, is that people are transformed and changed. You know, so it's almost like when somebody comes to Christ, you know, the Bible says they die, right? They die, and then there's a new person there. There's a new man, there's a new woman, there's a new boy, there's a new girl standing there. It's almost like the same effect of when a great army comes in and wipes everybody out and replaces the unrighteous with the righteous. It's just that they're replaced with the same person, kind of. The same person made new. And so Jesus is teaching them, you can't fight this war with the weapons they're going to be using because they're not powerful enough. You have to fight this war with spiritual weapons because only spiritual weapons are powerful enough to defeat the evil one, to defeat unbelief, 
to defeat true spiritual slavery, only spiritual weapons. And so what he's talking about during this whole council of war, as I call it, is how to fight with spiritual weapons. And so how are they to fight? How are they to prevail? Well, why? By being salt and light, of course. Okay, but what exactly does that mean in the context of such oppression and betrayal and persecution? This is what Jesus is addressing in the Beatitudes. When he connects these wonderful blessings to such counterintuitive conditions. Those who inherit the kingdom will not be those who are in power in Jerusalem. But rather it will be those who are persecuted for righteousness sake and thus are poor or oppressed in spirit. Now, let me talk about poor. He uses poor in spirit here. Luke says poor. In the Bible, sometimes poor means poor. Sometimes it just means you don't have anything. You're barely getting by. You don't have anything. But sometimes poor in the Bible means that you're being afflicted. You're being oppressed for righteousness sake. Not just generally, but you're being oppressed for righteousness sake. Now, uh, David refers to him at one point. He's, he refers to himself in one of the Psalms as this poor man. This poor man. Well, David's got an army of 600 men. It's not exactly impoverished. I mean, but, what, but why is he poor? Because he's being oppressed. He's being persecuted. He's being afflicted by Saul. For righteousness sake, David's done nothing. He's done nothing but to be the Lord's anointed. And Saul wants to kill him. All right? So he calls himself this poor man. So many times in the Bible, obviously those two things can link up. If you're persecuted and afflicted enough over long enough time for righteousness sake, you're probably going to end up being impoverished financially over the course of that. So the two can, can link up over time. But what Jesus is talking about here when he says poor in spirit is he's talking about those who are afflicted and oppressed and persecuted for righteousness sake. Notice how he begins and ends the Beatitudes. He begins in verse 3. He ends in verse 10. And, and the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude both have the same promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's beginning and ending these Beatitudes by giving the same promise, and thus the two conditions are linked. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Okay, so you may be poor, you may be rich, but being a poor in spirit means being afflicted. It means being afflicted for righteousness' sake, which Jesus specifies even more by saying, what does it mean to be afflicted for righteousness' sake? I'll tell you. It means to be persecuted. It means to have all kinds of evil set against you falsely for my sake. That's what it means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So, he says, these are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom. Not the people who are in power right now. Those who will inherit the earth will not be those who are proud and self-willed, but rather those who are meek. That is, those who are humble and submissive to Jesus, His Word. Remember, meek rhymes with weak, but they have nothing to do with one another. Meek is not weak. Meek in the Bible is the opposite of weak. All right? Meek. Weak opposites, not the same, all right? 
the, the word actually comes from an equestrian term that means a very powerful horse that is perfectly attuned to the rider. It's a very powerful horse, not a weak horse. Very powerful horse that is completely attuned to the rider. The slightest nudge from the rider's knee will cause the horse to go exactly where the rider wants. So a meek person is a very powerful person who is completely yielded to God. That's what a meek person is. And those are the ones who are going to inherit the earth, not the proud and self-righteous. Those who shall be called sons of God are not those in Jerusalem who will be persecuting Jesus' disciples and plotting revolt against Rome, but rather those who are the peacemakers. Now, here's another word that we tend to get wrong. We hear peacemakers and we think peacenik. We think get in a circle, sing kumbaya, uh, pass the mashed potatoes. I mean, you know, that's all we do. Uh, That's what we think. That's not peacemakers. Peace in the Bible is shalom. And shalom, absence of conflict, is just a small part of shalom. What shalom means is the good life. The good life. That's what shalom means. It means the blessing of God has come upon you to the full and everything is good. Everything, you, you just filled up with God's blessings in every direction of every sort. You can't even take it all in. That's shalom. That's what it means to be peacemakers, is to be those who bring God's shalom on the world. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. So, those who bring God's shalom and His blessings are not going to be those who confuse the kingdom of heaven with a nationalistic, militaristic regime, whether it's of Israel or anybody else. It's not going to be those who try to establish it by carnal warfare, by, by out-Romaning the Romans, or out-Babyloning the Babylonians, you know, or out-Assyrian the Syrians. You know, uh, it's not, that's not what it is. It's rather those who bring God shalom, His blessing, and the truly good life to the world. Those who she, shall see God are not the hypocrites who set aside God's word in favor of their own traditions, which is what Jesus will accuse the Pharisees of. It's not those who love to make a show of fasting or praying or giving alms, who love the best seats in the synagogues, but rather those who are pure in heart. That is, those who live before, they live their lives before the face of God. And they don't act out of ulterior motives toward God or toward other people. What you see is what you get. What you see is what you get. And they're always the same. They're always, it doesn't mean they don't sin. It just means, you know, you know who they are. You ride the rapids with them and they're the same. They're the same. Those who receive mercy will not be those who are unmerciful, those who are persecuting Christ's disciples, but rather those who identify with Christ and his people and who show them mercy. Those who visit them in prison, those who see them naked and give them clothes, those who see them thirsty and give them water, those who see them hungry and give them food. This this principle of identification with Christ will have a litmus test to it. And this litmus test will be the way, says Jesus, in which he will separate the sheep from the goats. 
in history and at the end of history, and that is the principle of identification with his people. You see, as this persecution is going on and Jesus' disciples are, you know, to be put out of the synagogues in that community meant you lost everything. You, it's not like today, you know, where a church says, you know, I mean, put you out. I mean, that doesn't even hardly happen, but, you know, it's like, oh, what does that mean? Okay, go down the block. That's all that means. To be put out of the synagogue means you, you were cut off. You were cut off from your family. You were disowned. It meant you were cut off from all your friends. It meant you were cut off from your business. Nobody would do business with you. It means you lost your life as you knew it. It means you looked forward and you saw nothing. So it was not a small thing. And Jesus says, look, those who are merciful are going to be those who identify with my people throughout this flood of persecution. If a Christian disciple was put in prison and you went to visit them, guess what? Your name goes down. There's a record of you visiting, just like now. You go visit somebody in prison. Go visit somebody in the county jail. Your name goes down. Now they know you. Oh, they're already in prison for the faith. You're going to go visit them? Your name goes down on the line? Guess what? You're risking everything. You give them food. You give them shelter. You give them water. It's like being an accessory after the fact. It's like helping a fugitive escape or hide from the law. You're just as guilty as they are. That's the way it's going to be looked at. And Jesus is saying, being merciful, let me tell you what it means. It means you identify with my disciples. You put your neck at risk. You put your job at risk. You put your family at risk because you stand with my people who seem to just be going down and swallowed up into a hole. He said, this is what it means to be merciful. He says, they're going to persecute you just like they did the prophets of old. He says, rejoice. Now, does that mean it's going to be fun? Because there's going to be 40 years of this mess. No, it's not going to be fun. Rejoicing doesn't mean we, we, we like the little pig in the... What commercial is that? No, it doesn't mean you say we, we, we all the way home. Rejoicing means you know the truth. And you know God's in control of this. And he's faithful to his promises. You rejoice. You stay faithful. You exemplify humility, purity, loyalty, love. And this is how you will be the ones who show the true flavor and deliciousness of life. This is how you will bring in God's shalom and blessing, the truly good life to the world. This is how you will let your life shine before men so that they glorify God and you will fulfill your calling as the light of the world. You're going to be a city on a hill in this way. You will show yourself to be the true Jerusalem. In this way, God is going to cause you to ride on the heights of the earth and draw all nations to you. In this way, he's saying, you will inherit the double portion. 
And what is the double portion? The earth and the kingdom of God. That's the double portion. Now, um, I started out by saying that these, the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, are among the best known and the least known of Scripture. And I wanted to emphasize today the meaning. We, needed, we had to go through a lot of work to bring ourselves into the context so that we can understand the meaning of these scriptures. I do want to talk about the application of these scriptures, but not this week because we just, it'll be too long. I would like to save that to next week to talk about, okay, now that we understand the context, how do we apply these things to our situation today? So I would encourage you to read again these things, to think about the biblical context, maybe compare them to other scriptures, and to be prayerfully thinking this week. Well, how do we apply these things in our day? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.